Welcome to Dad Rocks, a podcast for dads who love music, made by dads who love music. Hello and welcome to Dad Rocks, the podcast about being a dad and loving music and how the two intersect in our lives. I'm your host, Josh, and today's show is one of a three-part mini-series on a very personal subject for me, my father, David Frisch. So if you're not interested in hearing about my dad, feel free to skip these episodes. But I do hope you stick around, as this was an important project for me to undertake, as you'll soon hear. If you've been a regular listener of this show, you'll know that my father was a huge influence on my life in almost every way possible. But music was probably the biggest influence my dad had on me. From the music he played in the house and in the car, to taking me to shows, to encouraging me to play music, and then eventually finding ways for my bands to perform, he had a major impact on the musical part of my life. Though he never took any formal music lessons, he had the gift of having a musical ear and taught himself how to play harmonica, then guitar, and later the dobro. On top of all of that, he was a great singer and could harmonize with almost anyone, And he loved playing music, whether in an informal jam or a scheduled gig or just for my brother and I. Music was what made him truly happy, and it was a major outlet for him, especially after a long day's work in his chiropractic practice. So why am I choosing to do this three-part mini-series on him now? Well, on February 13th, 2003, my father passed away from a heart attack, making today, if you're listening to this podcast on the day that it was released, the 20th anniversary of his death. I figured now is as good a time as any to talk to people whom my dad played music with throughout his life. The way I initially approached this was to break his performing career into three eras. His time with his high school band Powdered Milk in the late 60s, his time with the almost original synthetic urban swamp grass jug band in the late 1970s and early 1980s, and then later in the few years before his death, and his time with the band The Old Man Jam in the mid to late 90s. While my initial approach was to do something in some chronological order, two of the conversations cover multiple time periods of my dad's life, so I decided to release all three episodes at the same time and let the listener decide how they wanted to listen to the episodes. On this episode, I talk with Glenn Taylor, who played with my dad in a group called The Old Man Jam, which would eventually evolve into a band called The Coots, who are now one of the busiest cover bands in New Jersey. Glenn also grew up in the same town as my dad and idolized my dad's high school band, Powdered Milk, so I was able to learn a little bit about my dad's early years as well. It was really great to talk to him as he had a very unique perspective of my father and was able to tell me some things that I never knew before. So let's get to my conversation with Glenn Taylor. Glenn, welcome to Dad Rocks. Thanks for coming on to the show. Hey, Josh. Thanks for having me. It's a pleasure. So first of all, how were your holidays this year? Everything was great. We celebrate them all over here, and uh, it's uh, multiples of fun uh, seeing the kids, the family. It's it's all great. It just uh, 
the generations hand down as you are finding out for yourself. It's great. Yes. And I'm, I'm guessing you guys were packed with gigs uh, during that week. As We usual. never close. <laughs> Coots, <laughs> I think we did 300 shows last year and kept our day jobs. <laughs> wow. That is, it's very, imp- I got to say, you know, we're, we're going to, we'll talk a little bit about the Coots later, but like, it's very impressive uh, how you maintain so many gigs and you yourself double, triple booking, sometimes playing two, three shows, especially during the summer. Uh, I, I give you a lot of props. And, you know, myself being in a cover band over the last couple of years, I cannot imagine doing that full time, you know, unless it's your full time job. You know, you have your studio and right. this, I guess, you know, since your kids are grown, it's a lot easier. But um, mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, it makes a yeah. difference. Uh, I mean, but even I, I remember the days of um, when they were little and they were you know, uh, trying to be a good dad and be there for them. And also once in a while, you'd have to arrange a sleepover or, uh, you know, rides and things like that. And, uh, you know, it all worked out. I mean, they, they still like seeing their dad. So I guess I didn't betray them. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Um, so, you know, to get, to get to the, the, the meat of this, um, so you and my father both grew up in Passaic, New Jersey. Um, correct. Yep. Passaic park, very fertile Um, music scene. And he was uh, about what three, two, three years older than you. I think he graduated in '69. Yeah, I can. I I in '72, so he was three years ahead of me. Okay, so when did you actually meet him? Because I know that later on, you know, you guys knew each other. You knew, you know, when did you actually meet? Did you actually know each other? Were you friends? We knew each other. There was there there. It's funny because as I knew I was going to be on the show with you, I thought I thought of that. That, that moment in time and you got to see you know when you're when you're this age like you know when I met your dad again in the 90s and he had also yeah. come in and done studio work playing harmonica for me occasionally um so I didn't lose total touch with him between high school and the 90s but mm-hmm. um it was kind of like he was in a band called Powdered Milk and they were I don't know if I can say it on a podcast, but they were the no, shit. Of course. They, they were yeah. well, it. And they were also known as powdered shit at one point. Well, too, it was I pure think, shit, <laughs> actually. And I believe, to my recollection, I was just telling our friend Don Jinta that um, the name was changed so they could get hired. <laughs> you yeah. know, but I, I totally remember uh, their gigs, and we would go to the local Y, and if they were playing the show, you know, we had a band called Resurrection, five Jews in a band called Resurrection, go figure. So. <laughs> We, we stood there and watched Powdered Milk and say, wow, you know, he's got a Leslie speaker and this guy's got a great kit of drums and George Beckwith is playing a Gibson SG and we have these Sears guitars, you know, and mm-hmm. we, it was always like that. They were like the benchmark that we, we uh, you know, tried to, uh, you know, strive for. And the irony so many years later was to get to play in the beginnings of, you know, what became what I'm still doing. So um, yeah. it, it really was uh, quite awesome in those days to to have them as our heroes, basically, on the to say, like, these guys, you know, and I think, to the best of my knowledge, the parents of the members of Powdered Milk were very involved in helping the band. They were they were definitely uh, pro-music, where a lot of parents will say, you know, get a real job, get a real life. So it was nice to see. Yeah. I don't know about my grandparents, per se, because, I you know, they passed away, you know, when I was young. But, I mean, I know my, my grandfather played organ, but they, I don't, they weren't, you know, I, I'm not sure if they were big on my dad. You know, I'm sure they would love that he was out of the house, you know, doing stuff and, and you know, and but I, I don't know exactly, you know, I, I guess I know Charlie Stein, uh, who I'm, you know, hoping to, to talk to at some point. Oh, great. I know his dad had a van or something and they would, I guess, use that to, to, to move stuff or, you know, with the gigs. And I, um, but um, sure. But yeah. and I, I remember the drummer yeah. Andy Polner, who, 
he was a great drummer, but the father would always go and he was he would always make sure that you know that the, the drums were in the right place. I mean, they're very caring and almost like kind of like mm. a little league dad for rock and roll. <laughs> I actually, re I actually had never met the dude, and I think he responded to something you posted, Andy Polner. That is really, and I then I I was talking to him back and forth a little bit a, a year or two ago because wow. I he because there's a lot of a lot of stories my dad told that were not. <laughs> I wasn't 100 percent sure. Of. Sure, um, there was always a classic one, and I had to ask Andy about this because I asked Charlie about it too. Was this they he? I guess he and Andy and I guess someone else saw Led Zeppelin on I guess on their second uh, world tour at MSG, and they walked out of the show. Wow. And I, I wanted to make sure that that was actually true. And Andy said, "Yeah, they were terrible that night." And they because my dad hated listening to Led Zeppelin after that point. <laughs> and I, it's, it's, Actually, it's it funny. One one of the memorable jam sessions I had with your dad. Um, we we uh, we got together at somebody's house in Clifton, New Jersey, and um, I'll never forget this. He goes, "Listen, I gotta go," and I go, "Why?" And he says, "I got tickets to this concert. I think it's for for Bangladesh, and it's tonight at the Garden." <laughs> and your dad was lucky enough to be able to see uh, another history making concert, yeah. and we and had to leave us in the lurch with our jam session. But at least he got to see George. <laughs> wow, crazy. Did you guys ever play together back then, or you know, or is it just more of a you know, you guys were in your own bands type thing? Well, yeah, in those days, and again, I was what I was going to say before is Josh, like when you were, when you were in like sixth grade, you wouldn't hang out with a ninth grader. That would be totally like verboten. But you know, if you're forty and you're friends with someone who's thirty-seven or thirty-eight, that's it's okay because right. the the gap of age diminishes as you as you age. So. I think that was a case in point with getting to know your dad when you when you know you and your brother were young that yeah. that you know he had these basically the 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 old man jam came out of literally jam sessions at your house on Eagle Rock Ave where we basically the dads would all get together one one or two times a month on a Friday night to get the hell away from the screaming kids we all had <laughs> and uh you know um it it, uh, it it really provided, and then we started bringing other people into the mix, like, you know, Chris Bolger, who actually ended up co-conspiring with us to start the band, and uh, guys like Ed, and uh, even Dennis Dyken from the Smithereens, uh, you know, there was good yeah. exposure to really talented players, and again, I had moved from um, Passaic to, to North Caldwell in like 1985, and I just didn't know any of the musicians who were uh, in my neck of the woods, so... Uh, it was really, um, it was really a, a challenge to reach out. And then when I finally um, met, uh, you know, your dad uh, introduced me to Chris and to Ed. And then there was like there was a bit of a scene that I felt that I was being pulled into. And then the, the, there was the Roseland Fair that they had every year in the park by your house. So all of a sudden there were different, um, there were different, you know, openings for, to to sort of say, well, I do this too. And and uh, and then I had the studio all along, but. Again, the kind of things I was doing in the recording studio weren't necessarily getting out and playing with local guys, you know. So yeah, uh, so you know, to to go back a little bit, because you know, when I, the way I remember, and you know, granted, it's just thinking about it, you know, for the first ten years of my life, my my I didn't know my dad played rock music. I know he liked listening to it. <laughs> he was always in the jug band, like he was always in the right. jug. I mean, granted, I'm also young. I don't really know what's going on with my dad. Like after you know, we go to bed. Um, but that's the band that I knew he was in. Uh, the only time I saw him play music really was playing with the guys from from his you know bluegrass jug band, right? Urban um, swamp grass, right? Swamp yes, gas. Yes. <laughs> um, but around like the time I, I when I I started playing drums around uh, I was nine, 
on my 10th birthday, my dad got got me my first drum set. And that was around the same time as the Caldwell Street Fair started getting going. And he was in charge of the, the music there and he wanted live music. Now, so the old man, what the jam session you're talking about became this band, Old Man Jam. What was, I mean, do you recall the conversations or how like it all started? Was it literally like, you know, my dad realizing, oh, I have now uh, a kid who plays you know rock music again i have a drum set at my house who wants to come play at the house or was it due to the street fair was it w w which which influenced i the think other? josh the jam sessions came first because again that was our respite and then somewhere about a year into these regular not so they weren't like you know perfectly scheduled but you know about once or twice a month and then yeah. so hey i think david was very you know involved with the kiwanis and he uh, and he said Hey, I got a chance for us to actually play a gig. You guys interested? Sure, why not? You know, I, and again, I was playing gigs all through high school and college. Um, got married, moved here in 1985, had my first kid in 1987, and I just stopped playing gigs. And I remember thinking, bands used to come into the studio and say, "Oh yeah, I got in at four in the morning for my gig," and I said, "I'll never do that again. I'll never. I'm so glad I don't do it." <laughs> and then when your dad said, "Hey, we have a chance to to play this gig," and okay, what the hell, it's a Sunday afternoon, and I believe you still have some excellent footage of some of the early yes, ones. Yes, yeah, I which, do. Yeah. Which was awesome to hear how much we, how far we've come and what we've learned from that, but it was, it's priceless, <laughs> well, you got, though. You, know. you got five guys from the from the synagogue basically playing initially. And, <laughs> exactly. You know, I mean, no, but granted, you know, you know you're a great player, uh, Ben's a great player. Was it, was it Gary Cabler was on? Gary Cabler uh, was the original, original drummer, but... We had him. We had Tony Denty, who uh, lived down the street from you. Um, yeah, and even there was your a guy your... Chris. I think there was some guy Chris also at some point. Oh yeah, and... um, he was from uh, Roseland. Um, yeah, I know who you mean. He had uh, he uh, he played some of the. We used to do barbecues in your backyard on Memorial yeah. Day. Mm -hmm. That was a big jam session, and actually um, another Passaic guy who I think you might remember who gave you, gave you some drum lessons, Jerry Polchi <laughs> from the Pulci, Four Seasons. Yep. He actually played a couple of the street fair gigs with us too, so yeah. we we had a revolving door, and that that yeah. I think is very rooted in the fact that what you know the band as it carries on from the days of the old man jam is is a multiplayer rotation. It's not like a set yeah. band, and I think I yeah. got a lot of that from David. Yeah, well, that's the other thing I want to ask because you know re regarding like the the that original band, uh, you know there was kind of like a revolving door of drummers and keyboard players, but you, my dad, and Ben were like, you know, the mainstays were the core of that that group. Was there any reason to that, or was just it just that's how it was? Because I remember getting pulled up one time. Maybe I think Ed Olstrom was playing with you guys at a street fair, and he asked me to come up, and, like, I ended up playing Rain by the Beatles. with Like, I don't know, it was just one of those weird things that, for some reason, like, it seemed like you guys could, I guess, till Tony came into the picture, right. you guys really didn't find a, a solid drummer. When it started being the old man jam, I think pre-old man jam, you had that guy, Chris, who played drums, and you had, yeah. uh, there was another guy who played keyboards, and they kind yeah. of burned off. And then when Tony came to town, like, wow, here's a guy who's a great drummer. He sings lead which, for a drummer, as you know, that's not as common as you might see. Um, you know, Ed was in in the beginning, and he was peripherally in and out. Uh, Chris Bolger was huge. Um, and then we started, um, you know, because, again, all the bands I had been in back in the day, like when I knew your dad in, in growing up in Passaic, in my band I was the guy who would – call the recreation director at the Y or, or talk to the dance committee chairman at the school and, and try to, you know, I always had a knack for, you know, all my life I've been selling it, like whether it be the studio or a band, so I, I'm not afraid to pick up a phone. So what happened was, um, 
you know, we kind of ran with it. And then, um, and even your dad, after a while, you know, I picked the pace up a little bit. I kind of took his cue. And I yeah. think uh, it was uh, the genesis of the rotation came from the fact that, you know, we all had kids. Not everybody could play every show, mm-hmm. and, nor did they care to. And, uh, you know, I think um, I think that kind of uh, and, and then uh, there was a there was a show that one of the uh, Chris Bolger could not play. So he goes, I know this guy. He knows a lot of the same songs I know. Uh, and he showed up at one of our gigs. He sat in and I go, oh my God, this guy's great. So then you realize the life is a box of chocolates. You never know what you're going to get. Is very applicable <laughs> right. to a band, and it's exciting for fans of the band too. Because and to this day, they if you hear the if you see a band frequently, and they play the same set and they have the same shtick, it it's really boring. And right. when you when you sub the players out, you and also one of the uh, things I learned is that anybody who doesn't sing lead is dead weight in the band because. You're trying to keep it small so you can make a few dollars, not that we're doing it for the money. But, you know, so typically a small four or five piece band has a better shot at making a few bucks if everybody sings and everybody plays like your dad played harmonica. He played guitar. I play keyboards. I play guitar. Um, You know, everybody sings. So all of a sudden, three or four guys can sound like seven or eight. And and, and that that definitely um, makes the band more attractive uh, sonically, for sure. Yeah. Now... In that initial, uh, you know, those jam sessions, which became the, the that band that played at the street fair and whatever, Old Man Jam, what, like, you know, was my, was it more of a collective or was my dad initially the de facto leader? What, like, because I try to get an understanding, like, you know, there's video of him, like, kind of yelling at guys, like, you know, what key we're in and everything like that. And what was he like, you know, I mean, was he like kind of, I don't know, was he the, like the band leader? What was he like? In the band himself. He was kind of like the Mike Love of the Beach Boys. <laughs> <laughs> he was kind of the guy out front, and I think it's almost like David adapted this um, mindset of, well, no one else is going to do it, so I better, you know? Yeah. Um, and and we, you know, your dad commanded our respect. Um, you know, he, he um, you know, plus we were all friends, so that that's yeah. it's different when you have a band that's, that's constructed of friendships and, like, the music thing was like, okay, well, we're still friends. So, you know, it, it actually is also a good way to end friendships. <laughs> <laughs> but um, a lot of it, a lot of that fell on your dad. Cause initially, again, he was the one that said, Hey, I got a chance for us to play somewhere. And um, so we kind of looked at him as the fearless leader at the outset, you know, uh, I'm not okay. sure how it worked in the high school band powdered milk, but uh, when old man jam started getting it together, um, David was kind of the, uh, the fearless leader. In that same line of, of thinking, um, what made you enjoy playing with him? Like, what made you enjoy being in a band with him? He knew what he was doing. Again, I, and again, I hadn't been in bands. I graduated college in 75 and started my studio business. So when, when I got pulled back, and I, I unfortunately got divorced in about 1996, and I think that, that extra time on my hands, which was unwilling but looking to be filled pretty you know, regularly, mm-hmm. It was a welcome activity, and I think when, um, you know, again, because uh, because David, you know, he, he was kind of, I wouldn't say sure of himself, because that's a little too strong of a term, but, mm-hmm. you know, he, he didn't stop doing what he was doing. He, he still loved it, and I kind of was like, oh, yeah, this this is fun again, and I, I you know, I kind of got, you know, like they say in the, in the guy that played, pull me right back in again, you know, so yeah. um, it, it was... Um, it wasn't quite eye-opening, but it was kind of like a re, um, 
you know, reacclimation to like, wow, yeah, yeah, you know, and 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 because David was, he wasn't like a taskmaster. It wasn't like he didn't make it a, dr- a draconian experience to to be in a band with because the band never was taken that seriously till probably you know later on you know um uh in you know we we because i'd say we started percolating with this thing where we do the street fair we do the the country fair and all that and that mm-hmm. was probably around 96 97 98 but it wasn't till about 2000 where um one day uh chris bolger came over and because uh, we, we were all playing in other bands too uh by that point and and he said you know and i wasn't particularly uh, happy with the band i was in because i was with a guy who was like a dictator and Mm. You know, I, I mean, just it's it's a long story we don't have to go into. But but the long story short, Bolger came over one day and he said, uh, you know, let's make this the main thing we're doing. And I think that was the point at which David, as soon as it became structured, that was that was the the balloon burst for David because yeah. I think the informality of it is what was attractive to him. You know, he was never like a guy who stood on ceremony. You know what I mean? He was loose, and that was the beauty of it. And then we had to go mess it up by trying to get serious with it. <laughs> <laughs> well, that that's you know, that was the next question I was going to ask because, um, you know, my dad always talked about how it was a story, and you know, I he he obviously com, uh, you know blew it up, or I for you know I misheard him, but he always told this story, and I'll just tell the way I remember it, which I was told is not accurate, that he that his band powdered milk was uh asked by somebody from fantasy records to sign a recording deal or something like that which i found out later that was not true i think maybe they're asked to like open for somebody or Mm -hmm. something i don't know um but his his story is that everyone in the band was ready to go to college and they decided that it was more important for them to go to college than it was to be a rock band wow um and foresight (laughs) that was I don't know. Again, I don't know. I got to I got to find out and do some more digging about that. But that was the story he told. And he always, you know, the way he told me is like, I don't want to make something I love become a job. The minute it becomes a job, that's when it's no no longer fun. And I probably took that too much to heart when I was younger, um, not studying music when I probably sh- should have, you know, maybe gotten a little more in depth in studying music. Whereas my brother, thankfully, you know, he followed his passions and, you know, has become successful. But, you know, at that time, you know, I believe your first gig was at the County Line Pub in Fairfield or Pinebrook. I'm not sure where uh, if that was. Uh, I know some of your first gigs were there. That was the first one uh, in um, in Fairfield. And that was I still have a picture of the first gig. And if you go, it's even on the Coots website. If you yeah, go to the archive photos, it was, that was a, I think it was you, my dad, Ben, Chris, Ed Alsterman was Dennis Dyken on drums. Yes, on that Dennis one, was or? on that one. Yeah. Yeah. And so like, as you said, it, like kind of the bubble kind of burst, you know, for my dad, because he felt that, you know, why are we monetizing something or making this a job when it should just be fun? Did you have any conversations with him about that? Or, you know, um, like what was it anything you tried to say to him to kind of influence him to maybe think a different way about it? What I remember, Josh, was that when I would ask him, at, once that happened, because at that point in time, which I believe was February of, it was either 2000 or 2001. I know it was, yeah. it, it was, I might've been, it might've been 2000. It was, it was late in my high school career. It was like yeah. late in my high school career, possibly, yeah, it was before I graduated. I remember that. And I think, right. And and I think what happened was, um, again, I started asking him about like, hey, I got us a gig here and I got us a gig there. You want to play? And I know he did a gig. We played, um. 
down at the Liberty Tavern in Union. And he st- at, the, at the outset, he, he went along on some of these. But yeah. because he didn't play every single one, um, it became apparent to me that there has to be some cards to shuffle in the band lineup deck. But, um, but I didn't want to be in 10 bands. So my, right. the light bulb for me was, you know, um, let's call all the 10 bands the same band and market it <laughs> under one banner. And um, I think that, um, but I think you're right. I think David didn't want to make it a job. And, and I'll tell you, to this day, now this is, you know, some, we're, we're, we're commemorating 20 years. And um, it's still fun, but it, it comes with a lot of, there's a lot of responsibility. Plus the times are different. And, you know, everybody wants you to have liability insurance and everybody's afraid of a lawsuit. And I think, you know, if your dad had been here to, to see all that, he might have lost interest even at a faster rate of descent <laughs> because it, it got everything became very official. And, uh, and I think yeah. the organic nature of what the old man jam was back when we were in the basement days transitioning into the early loose gigs, you know, I mean, I've learned so much about it's in this conversation as we're speaking, I'm realizing all the things that I've learned about what makes a band, um, I guess, desirable on that, on that commercial level, if you're, you know, because the New, the New Jersey, New York tri-state music scene is very fertile. There are lots of gigs to be had. You're not going to make a lot of money. And again, fortunately for me, I don't do it for the money. I would do it for free, to be honest with you, because I love playing. Mm-hmm. And um, but I think knowing that you have to, you know, oh, I got this weekend. I have three gigs I got to do. I don't mind that. Uh, but it's 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 the point of life. Now, again, at the t- point of life we were starting out, everybody had young kids. Um, you know, you among them, my daughter's among them. So, <laughs> you know, it, yeah. it, uh, I think, um, so once, once that gigs lined up as far as the eye could see was kind of a turnoff to him. And, um, you know, I, I'd have to go back in the picture books, but, uh, you know, I, I know that, um, he was doing it a little less and less. And, uh, you know, uh, he obviously had a full-time, uh, practice going as well. So, um, you know, it's, it's, um, it's a little self-indulgent to like throw your whole life into it. So everything has to be in perspective, but you know, um, there'll be, there'll probably come a day for me too. When it's like, well, this is just like a lot, you know, the years when the, the informality of the old man jam was at a time when the kids were little. Now, the reason if my kids stayed that age forever, <laughs> if only they could. Right. But yeah. you know, the, the fact that there's a lot of empty nesters and, and the problem is actually is a glut of bands because all these, these fat old guys have classic rock bands and they're playing the same 10 songs. And, you know, and I, I don't want to sound like a snob, but I think the pedigree of having come from a, you know, a professional audio background, I'm very organized. And I, it's almost like taking the best and the joy of what I learned working with David and catapulting that forward within the framework of something that's a pretty efficiently well-run machine. And I, I'm, I'm just, you know, it's a disease because I guess when you do, uh, you know, I do production, obviously audio production, there's somewhat, you can't be loosey-goosey with that. And there's a discipline that carries over to other parts of your life. And, you know, I've always said, you know, to to consumers like fans, um, oh, you you must be so great. You're in this rock and roll band and it's a party and you guys are drinking (laughs) and getting high and you're just all the time. And I said, make no mistake because your good time is my work. And I don't, yeah. I, and I, and I embrace it totally, Josh, but they, the, the line is very easily blurred because they think it's this big party. And 
that's good marketing because you want to associate that party with, like, if you hang out with the old man jammer, you hang out with the coots, you got to have a great time. But, you know, when it comes down to brass tacks, you cannot make the mistake that it's it's a lifestyle. It is, it's kind of an illusion. And um, mm. marketing, you know, is everything. You sell the sizzle, not the steak. And, um, you know, so I always, especially now social media wasn't around when we started, but I have totally, I mean, I, it's probably like a third job because I get home from a gig and I'm on three hours <laughs> posting videos and photos and talking about the next gig. But I think successful marketing is to make the consumer um, want to press his nose up to that showroom window and say, man, I wish I could get on the other side of this glass and be part of what they're doing. Mm-hmm. And I do it with my studio. I do it with the coots. And actually, uh, I, I, I like to mention this too because... Um, if you ever go to thecoots.com, which is the homepage, you see a cartoon that was drawn by Tony's wife, Andrea Dente, about twenty-some uh, mm-hmm. odd years ago, and that guy is David, hmm. sitting on I the bass drum, and so he's kind of looking over us the whole way down, and you know maybe he's saying, eh, "I wouldn't be on this gig," and he's, you know, but I'm still casting an eye, and uh, and that's why I mean, after what happened uh, twenty years ago when we lost him. I didn't want to, you know, uh, you know, somebody, oh, I can make you a really nice-looking homepage image. I'm like, you know what? I like this, and I like that this is what it was in the beginning. So there, there is still a connection, even though things have changed. Um, I don't forget that stuff. And, uh, yeah. and again, it's even deeper because I had the chance to, 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 you know, be wowed by how great David's Powdered Milk Band was and Hope to Aspire. Mm-hmm. So, like I said, when, when, when I got the call and said, hey, you're going to jam with David, I'm like, oh, my God, it's like, the audience with the Pope. <laughs> <laughs> now you mentioned earlier, and you know, I, I, I tried to do this chronologically, but I, I'm just remembering something you mentioned. Did you play with him before? Like, cause you mentioned some, some, some jam session. In the Clifton. Bangladesh day yeah. was actually the, the absolute hinge on which the door turned because, um, so I think somebody who knew me that was bringing him and, and I said, David Frisch from powdered milk is going to be there. I'm there, man. And I brought my Fender Twin Reverb and my SG, and I was like nervous. I was nervous about a jam session. I mean, I don't even know. You know what? I don't even remember the other musicians on it, but I do remember that David was on it. And, you know, that was the first time I actually remember playing music with him. Because, again, when we talked about that ratio earlier of like a ninth grader wouldn't hang out with a seventh grader or whatever. So when they had their band going full steam, we were like little peons in ninth grade, like, I wish I could have a band like that. So um, we, we never really got to step up to the plate with them because they were the big leagues. We were the minor leagues. And then, you know, back in 1970, I believe, August of August 1st, 1970, if I'm not mistaken, that might have been the date. That up now. Right. But that, that, that date of the Bangladesh uh, concert was uh, in the daytime uh, was when I finally got to, you know, p- play music with your dad and step up to the plate, so to speak. It was, uh, yeah, it was August 1st, 71. What? 71, okay. I was off by a year. <laughs> so he must have been home from college. Yeah. Might have been, might have been uh, Charlie on that too, playing some keys. I really don't remember it. It's, it's so vague. But, yeah. Uh, but that, but that, is that the only time you guys played before you guys started jamming in the basement of my house? Yeah, I think so. That, there was another, well, well again, um, I started my recording studio when I was still living in my parents' home in Passaic. Uh, then it was mm-hmm. called If Walls Could Talk Studios. And um, get a, a little scene set. If I'm not being too verbose, you can cut this out. But the drinking age in New Jersey had just been lowered to 18. 
1977, I think. So all of a sudden, every bar, every club was having music seven nights a week. It was like an orgy. There were mm. so many bands. And I had been trying to uh, make my way as a singer-songwriter. I, I, I asked my father, I said, can you loan me 2000 bucks? I'm going to buy a four-track TX reel-to-reel, make my own demos at home, spot me a year or two in the basement, and, and I'll go get a real job if nothing happens. So all of a sudden, they lowered the drinking age. All these bands are looking for a studio. My father says, why don't you monetize what you've done? You know, your, your recordings sound pretty good, even though I don't have a musical ear. But um, So there was a little publication that ran in the uh, Bergen-Passaic County area called the Want Ad Press. It was a little rag that people sold their cars and their garden tools. But there was a music section for, you know, amps and guitars. So I think for, for I think it was five bucks for two weeks, I put a little ad said, we'll record your band's demo for... 10 bucks an hour. And I got swamped. And all of a sudden, I discovered <laughs> making money. And I'm like, wow, I get to do what I... Because I loved, always loved the production more than the writing of the songs, you know? Mm. It's probably why my stuff was very mediocre, because I couldn't wait to record it. <laughs> so I'm saying, so these guys are coming in, and they're asking me what I think. And all of a sudden, I, that was the beginning of getting a producer ear. Um, you know, and like, you know, oh, you're playing a lead solo over the guy's vocal. You probably want to lay back till it's the solo. And uh, so for 10 bucks an hour, it started adding up. I'm working at home. I'm not paying rent. And then I start setting, uh, you know, okay, maybe I'll go from four track to 16 track and then 24 track. And now the studio is too small. Let me move to Caldwell in 1985. And, um, you know, so I wasn't playing music on a regular basis out. I think um, maybe I'd do one or two gigs a year, like here and there. If a band called me, hey, we can't get anybody. Can you do it? And I'm like, I'll muck my way through it. But... Um, but then, um, you know, the, the thing that your dad represented was an, an organized, legitimate chance to play music live with other players who wanted to do the same thing. And that was just incredibly cool. And again, because I had a little more time on my hands at the time than I wanted to, because uh, I only, you know, obviously every other week thing with the kids mm -hmm. and here and there. So I like, yeah, okay, you know, that sounds good. Friday nights at the Frisch Residence and we'll jam, have a few beers, and, you know, just have a great time. And, and it was a great time for sure. Have fun, fun, now, did fun he, memories. Did he do any session work with you before this, or is this... Well, was... yeah, but that, that's what I'm saying. From the, from the, day yeah. of, from the time of the 1971 uh, infamous Bangladesh jam till we started convening in uh, 20 years later in the 90s, mm -hmm. uh, there were several occasions where I was, you know, and I knew that I was aware of your dad's harmonica ability. And um, so... Um, you know, I I had called him, I know, at least a couple of times. And, and your mom, who he was dating at the time, even I remember her coming to the session. Hmm. And, uh, you know, him doing, uh, you know, the harp parts and uh, blues harp. And it was just really cool. It was like one of my first, hiring your dad, actually, I think for a whopping 25 bucks, <laughs> was, was one of the first experiences I had with contracting. Because, again, I play guitar, bass, drums a little bit, you know, I mean... So a songwriter could come in and I could sort of like help them do what they're doing. But then, oh, but I need a harmonica here. Oh, I don't do that. Um, hmm. And that was my first experience as a as a procurer of talent or contracting. You know, you know well, I know this guy, Dave. He's a really good harmonica player. And uh, he came down with Paula. And uh, I have very vivid memories of that session. You know, cause I was producing a girl from California who uh, had the boyfriend with the big bucks and he goes uh, well you know I'll he gave me a lot of money for a week of my time and said just make, make sure you can produce four or five songs in a week 
I'll give you a blank check, and oh, great, I can hire David. He'll pay for it. <laughs> so it was a very cool experience, and and you know, got to you know stay in touch. So I never really, I wouldn't say I fell totally out of touch with your pops, but right. um, but but you know, once I moved into the area, you know, all those Passaic people moved to you know West Essex. And uh, yeah. we were in, in the shadow of each other, so yeah, it was it was kind of like a f the familiarity was was a nice touch to to go into you know doing jams yeah. with. I, I mean, I had no idea he did like any of this. This is why like I've been trying to you know want these conversations because there's a lot of stories you know because he passed away when I was 19, and even though he told some stuff, there's a lot of stuff that I you know I never asked about or he never brought up, and it just never came to mind. So now. You know, this is it's I, I never knew he did session work like again, like this is this is kind of uh, cool stuff. Now, when I know at the right before he passed or right around, you know, around that time, the coots were becoming the coots or had become the coots. Right. Um, but you guys put out an album. I know it didn't come out till after he passed away. Was that like an attempt to do original music or what was what was the impetus behind that? And how much of that was my father on? I mean, I've, I've heard some of it. I think my mom has the CDs at she home. She got the first one. Um, I came from the pressing what? plant to your house and handed her the first one. And, yeah. uh, and with a big thank you. And I think what happened with that was, yeah, David just kind of missed the boat. But we, we sort of, a la John Lennon, free as a bird, uh, posthumously um, had a track of him playing and we superimposed his harmonica playing on a blues track that we did with Dennis Dyken and Ed. Ed played Worlds or Electric Piano. Yeah, uh, I played, and a matter of fact, your father also introduced me, and I don't know if anybody uh, in your family still has the um, the National Resonator guitar. Oh, we, we have it. It's a, it's a little bit broken. My brother and I have been talking about sending it to either National or somebody who can... I got like somebody a, for you. We can guy. talk about that right in okay. Caldwell, actually. He's awesome. But um, I bought one. Um, probably a lot more money now, but it was about 1500 bucks, and I just thought it was the coolest sound. And again, your dad's influence. I just used it on a track with an artist in the studio last week. I said, this is the coolest guitar. It's like a Dobro, but it's yeah. like a Les Paul combined, and you can mix how much of each one you want. And um, and every time I look at that thing, I think of your dad, and because uh, he turned me on to that. And, uh, you know, uh, it was... Um, like I said, I don't even think he realized the a lot of eye-opening things that, you know, he left for us. It was like kind of crumbs in the forest that we followed. And uh, <laughs> that was that was a very uh, influential uh, instrument. And uh, so when we were doing the album, uh, in, in 2005, we recorded an album called Tales from the Endless Bus Tour in New Jersey. Mm -hmm. And we, we wanted to do some choice covers, like deep cuts, uh, but we also wanted to do uh, some of our own. So... Uh, Chris Bolger contributed about five songs. Um, a couple of other members contributed their own. Um, we did uh, actually Tommy James from Tommy James and the Shondells, who was still a client of mine here, was good enough to do, um, you know, it was nice because we had Dennis from the Smithereens. We had Tommy James. And I try, I always felt if we put enough oddities or, or guests or why would these people play on this record? Who the hell are the coots? That it might it might attract a little attention, and actually we've sold about thirty five hundred of them since oh, wow. two thousand five. I mean, because we were always playing gigs, and the little CD rack is there, and for, we only sell them for five bucks, so people can take it home like a piece of candy. Um, and I did actually look before; it's on Spotify too. I think it's on all of the major streaming services uh -huh. as well. Yeah, yeah, but your dad. But this one song, um, your father used to have a blue Volkswagen, as you might recall. Well, we called the song "Blue Beetle," 
And mm. um, uh, I believe Chris Bolger had a rhythm track. It was kind of a bow do like doom, 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 you know. And we had this thing, and um, I think we had bass and drums. I don't even know who played on it. Now, Dennis played the drums. It was done in another studio, but Chris brought the multi-track. We transferred it into uh, digital. And then we added this, you know, the uh, the National Steel guitar, that, that you're, um, which was another tip of the cap. And then we had this, I'm not sure where we pulled the harmonica from, but he was jamming in the same key that we did the song in. And so we, we put that in Pro Tools so we could chop it up and synchronize it to the music, uh, digital audio workstation. And, I mean, um, I remember you guys, sorry to interrupt, but like, I remember you back in the old man jam days, you guys did record at your studio. I remember like a demo tape or something. I sort have of one recording. and I'd be happy to make one for you because um, <laughs> it was all cover tunes and uh, I think, you know, like some Almond Brothers and stuff with David yeah. Kuhl. And that was um, Chris Howe. Now I just remember the drummer you mentioned, okay. Chris yeah. Howe, H-O-W-E. He was on it and this uh, other guy, uh, I forget his name, he played keyboard and... Uh, and then uh, David, Ben, and myself. And we, we came in, we just plugged in everything live, no overdubbing, just live to uh, a DAT digital tape. And we did about seven or eight songs in a night, vocals and right. everything. And I, I, I still have it. And uh, so that would, It wouldn't have come from that, that, those sessions, though, that, or that session, right? It would, it, that, that, the harmonica track, I'm, I'm the saying. Blue, the Blue Beetle was, it was kind of a premeditated tribute to your dad because he wasn't with us to finish the record. And right. even though his involvement had waned a little bit from the band and playing out, you know, almost like um, Brian Wilson didn't do Beach Boys gigs right. after a while, but he was still, you know, the the, the granddaddy of it. And, uh, you know, uh, I, ever, I never felt David was excluded from anything right right all the way till, till the end. And, uh, you know, um, we... Um, but we, we, uh, we tried to... Um, create this track so he could a matter of fact we from from the very session that you were talking about where we did the live demo here mm -hmm. i'm trying to think what it says at the end of the song it goes uh so i think he says pretty good for a demo and, <laughs> and we took that little slice off the cassette tape and stuck that on the blue beetle track like you know oh, at the end you know it has like a flourish and an end and you hear the drums go brump and then we yeah. cut it in and eh, not bad for a demo or what, what something to that to that effect, and uh, you know we wanted to feel feel like he uh, was on it was kind of under his watch you know it was really a yeah. sweet and uh, you know um, good collection of songs and uh, you know ironically people quick funny story that's an aside that uh, you know you tell people we worked for two years making this CD and we have all these cool guest stars and all these odd covers. And some great original songs, and then look at the sea. They go, "Where's Brown Eyed Girl?" <laughs> so, I said, "I'm gonna, I'm gonna fix their ass." And the next uh, CD, I took, I bought a Zoom recorder when they first came out. I recorded right. gigs for about five or six months, took the best sounding twenty tracks, put them together on a live record. Sounds like someone's basement demo, and called it Cootleg, which is has its own legacy, like bootleg, and. Yeah. Um, as soon as people saw that, they started buying both CDs. So one one helped out the other. But uh, cool. it was great. Um, you know, one thing I've always thought about, and you know, we're going to start wrapping it up, is if, if, if my father hadn't passed away when he did, um, do you think that he would have still played gigs? Um, or do you think, like, maybe when he retired, he would have played more gigs with you guys? Or do you think that... He would have just stayed and you know 
done the same thing that he was doing, which was like, you know, if he was around, had you know, kind of felt that you asked him to come play, he'd pop in type of deal. I think the latter, and I also think that because um, these days, the the great thing about what what we are doing now, um, and I'm coming back to what you're saying is, you know, we'll play some commercial. I say there's two kinds of audiences for a cover music that the or or any music really the ones that love the beat and the ones that love the band and you could play you know you could be this play some innocuous horrible song that's danceable and people don't care who's playing it but we still maintain a couple of like small dessert venues or a coffee house i, I think it's important for us to keep those shows we play them acoustic with with no drums or just hand percussion guitar bass and i have a feeling if david had still still been around he would have relished the coffee house, the up close, the living room concert vibe. Um, there's a couple of places now that have a very um, uh, chill kind of atmosphere. Like the, the emphasis is on the music. There's no dinners. There's no TVs like so many bars that everybody plays in. So I think David would probably would have said yes to some of those shows. And occasional. I think he would, you know, if he played like four times a year, he'd probably be fine with that, you know. Oh, yeah. Well, Glenn, you know, before I let you go, uh, first off, thanks for coming on. I really appreciate this. There's a lot of a lot of stuff I didn't know about my father, and you know, this is you know why I wanted to to hear this and just kind of get a sense of of him. You know, outside of being my father, but being you know someone who played music and and and, and all that and stuff. Um, but you know, for our for the listening audience um, who may not know of the Coots or where to you know check you guys out. It, where can they find you on social media, on the web, and, and all that oh, stuff? Oh, sure. Well, if they um, go to the website, which is kind of the uh, be-all, tell-all of uh, everything we do, that's www.thekootz.com, thecoots.com. We are, um, if you search the Coots Band on Instagram and uh, the Coots Rock and Roll with Fiber on Facebook, or just type in Coots, because I don't think anything else is spelled that way, except the one woman who... Uh, lives in England and discovered us. And she sends me a, a Facebook message and she says, my name is Hedda Coots and my family is having a reunion. Can I buy 50 t-shirts from you? <laughs> so, so there are Coots, but uh, what Coots is, is basically, again, your dad's lingering legacy, kind of like a uh, crusty old guy who says, get off my lawn. Or if he's annoyed, he doesn't want to do something. And, you know, when I think what's a Coot, I think of David, but when I explain it to a general a public kind of person, I just say, Webster spells it C-O-O-T, like you old coot. And we just made it a little bit zany with K-O-O-T-Z. And, uh, a little bit Yiddish, right? A little bit Yiddish. Exactly. <laughs> it's a very Hamish kind of uh, version of coots. So uh, your dad is still watching us. He is, spirit is with us. We miss him a lot. And I, uh, it, it's kind of fun to think of uh, where he would have fit into this. But I don't think he would have abandoned it. I think he would have always embraced yeah, so, to play. He, he loved playing music, so. Yeah, he sure sure would have come back to that. Well, Glenn, thanks again for coming on to the show. Really appreciate talking to you. And um, yeah, thanks for coming on. My pleasure, Josh. You take care. God bless you all. Thanks. Thanks. Bye. I really want to thank you for taking the time to listen to this episode of the podcast. Again, this was an important project for me to do to remember my father. So I hope you get a sense of what type of person and musician he was and found the stories about him and the people he played music with interesting and enjoyable. 
And if you haven't already listened to the other episodes of this miniseries, I hope you do. Now, whether this is your first time or you've been listening since the beginning, I really appreciate everyone checking out the podcast and would really love for you to subscribe to the show and maybe give it a review or, you know, just tell a friend about us. If you'd like to follow the show on social media, we're on Instagram and Twitter, both at Dad Rocks Pod, as well as on Facebook by searching up Dad Rocks Podcast. If you have any questions, comments, or any show ideas for us, or just want to give us a shout, you can always email us at dadrockspod at gmail.com. Now, before I go, I'd like to say something. If your dad is still alive, give him a call. Shoot him a text. Just tell him you love him. And if you have kids, give him a hug and tell them the same thing. You never know when you won't have that opportunity again. So, I want to say thank you again for listening. And remember, dads, you rock. And dad... I love you.